Welcome to Podcast 6.1, a new chapter and a new type of bonds, and that is called a covalent bond. Now, up until this time, we've dealt with bonding, right? And as you know, that's between a positive ion and a negative ion, right? And there's this electrostatic attraction. It makes an ionic compound, and it occurs between metals and nonmetals. Well, in real life, there's a lot of uh, opportunities for nonmetals to come together. In fact, living things uh, with carbon and stuff, they are bonding in a different way, and this is covalent bonding. And covalent bonding is simply a bond formed when the atoms share electrons. Now, there still is that driving force of an octet, but uh, they're not being uh, transferred where one is losing an electron and one is gaining an electron. Now they're being shared. For example, let's say, let's say we have water, all right? Now, oxygen has uh, six valence electrons. I'm just going to draw them around like this. I'm kind of alluding to what we're going to do soon. And then here comes hydrogen. Now, hydrogen has one valence electron, right? Well, if hydrogen were to share its electron with oxygen, right, right there, and this hydrogen were to share its electron with oxygen, look what we have. How many valence electrons does oxygen have now? Eight, an octet. However, hydrogen hasn't lost an electron, and oxygen hasn't gained electrons. They're simply sharing. And how many electrons does hydrogen need in its outer energy level? Two, right? Because there's only two electrons that you could put in the 1s orbital. So that's what's going on between nonmetals. They are uh, sharing their bonds. And what you get is this right here, this picture, this molecular orbital, where now instead of those orbitals that we learned, the S and P's and the D's and so, now we get an orbital that is a uh, combination of the two electron clouds of uh, an atom. And this is a model right here of hydrogen bonding to itself. Kind of like this H with a bond to an H. All right. And then this stuff right here, we've already gone over this. Electrons are repelling. Protons are repelling. Uh, however, protons are attracting electrons, and so this bond occurs at just the right point where the uh, attraction is a little bit greater than the repulsion. Actually, I should say where the, the attractions are about the same, and you have this distance right in here between the nuclei. All right, And that has to do with energy, so let's go to our energy diagram. Here's an example. Let's say we have two atoms together. Now, these are nonmetals. It could be a hydrogen and a hydrogen, just to make it easy for us. And they're floating around with just one valence electron. Well, that one valence electron is not a most stable situation. As you know, hydrogen needs two to fill up the first energy level, right? So what happens is they start to come together. And as they come together... Remember, we talked about ground state and excited state. Well, everything is happening to get to a more stable situation. And actually, let me, let me pull that out rather than just saying it because you'll want to write this down. Atoms become more stable when they form a covalent bond. So they're coming together. And as you can see the energy diagram, here's zero and here's less than zero. So if you're less than zero, you're more you're more stable than 
uh, at zero. So as they're getting closer together, their potential energy is decreasing until they come to this, oops, didn't mean to do that, until they come to this point right here where there is this attraction, just like this, this part right here, this attraction and repulsion, the perfect spot where the forces are just right and you've made this molecular orbital where they are sharing. And that is an important thing. That's what's going on. So they, they become at a lower energy state. And since they've lost energy, that energy is going to be given off. So when bonds are formed, and this is an important concept, energy is released. Can you imagine what happens when bonds are broken? In other words, what I want to do is I want to take these two, these two atoms right here, and I want to split them and get them back up to there. What does that take? Well, that takes energy in. Okay, so energy has to go in to get uh, the bonds to form. So that's what's going on with energy stability. It's a really important concept. Two atoms or more come together, share electrons, and they are at a lower potential energy state, which is favorable. And that's the driving force behind uh, a covalent. All right, so moving on. So let's talk about uh, the next step in sharing, because there's two ways of sharing. There's an equal sharing, and there's an unequal sharing. And if it's an equal sharing, we call it a nonpolar covalent bond. All right. So in other words, uh, we've got these two atoms. They're together, and I'm going to use hydrogen because it's an easy example. And they're bonded, and this cloud, this molecular orbital, is even between the two. In other words, there's no uh, pole on either side. Kind of remember like ionic bonds, we had, we had positives and negatives. But let's look at something else because this, one ha this is what happens quite often. You get a polar covalent bond. Now, pole, think of like poles of a magnet, right? So with a polar covalent bond... The shared electrons are more uh, held a little more closely to the atom with the higher electronegativity. Whoa, there's a term we haven't seen in a while. Remember what electronegativity is? Remember that 4.0 table we had? Well, we're going to use that now, actually, to figure out some bonds. So let me just kind of give you an example. Fluorine, which hopefully you remember, had an electronegativity of 4.0. All right? And maybe I have a chart there. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Here's fluorine at 4.0. Let's say it's going to bond with something like hydrogen, which is 2.1. All right? Well, if it bonds to hydrogen, the electrons, I'm going to draw the molecular orbital kind of as a dot. The electron cloud is greater around the fluorine than it is around the hydrogen. All right. And again, remember, these orbitals are just the, the high area probability where we'd find electrons. So what happens is if at any one time I'm looking at this atom, it's most likely more negative on this end and more positive on this end. And you'll see in the books a delta symbol positive, that's a lowercase delta, and a delta symbol negative. So what happens is this molecule is actually polar, and that's important because it has uh, a lot to do with the properties of that molecule based on whether it's polar or nonpolar. And we'll get into what it does. It has to do with melting point and boiling point and vapor pressure and all sorts of things. Um, so that's the, 
That's what's going on when you have an unequal sharing of electrons. And then, of course, our ionic bond, which we know, oops, we know very well from the last chapter, an ionic bond, the difference in electronegativity is high enough to strip an electron from an atom. In other words, as you know, if I'm, if I'm an atom here, uh, let's, say, let's say I'm a sodium atom, right, and it had that one valence electron out here, and I'm a chlorine atom, and it had those seven, right? This electron right here uh, would actually be stripped and come over here to make chlorine negative and sodium positive. That's just a quick review. You guys remember that stuff. I know you do. So we've kind of got three types of bonding we're dealing with. Well, not really. Well, yeah, let's just go three types. We've got ionic bond, and then you have covalent bond. And covalent bonds can be separated into two subcategories. One that is polar, where you have an unequal sharing, and one is nonpolar. Now, you might ask yourself, well, gosh, do I have to memorize the electronegativity chart? Heck no, you don't. I'm always going to give you this chart because I wouldn't want anyone to have to memorize this. All right? You do, I mean, as I mentioned in the past, we do want to remember that fluorine's the king with a 4.0, and then everything else gets lower from that. It decreases as you go down and decreases as you go this way, right? But. If we want to kind of figure out exactly which way it is, let's. Uh, we've got a way of doing this, and this is the the chart from your book. If the difference between a polar and a non uh, let me let me slow down. If the difference between the the two elements, their electronegativity is greater than five, but less than two point one, it's if it, it's in this range, it's a polar covalent bond. If it's between 0 and 0.5, we'll call it a polar, a nonpolar covalent. And then on an ionic will be greater than 2.1. Now this scale is kind of random. In, in, a, in a previous textbook that I had, it used to be 1.3 and 1.7. So it really kind of depends on the publisher. The idea that you want to know is that this is kind of a sliding scale. As you go this way, you're moving to more polar and eventually to ionic. That's the important concept. The greater the difference, the difference, the more polar, all right? Which of course includes ionic as being superpolar. Okay. So there we go. So let's just kind of look at a couple examples and try and figure out how would, how would these fall in the scale. I've got a few on this next page. All right. Now, if you want to go ahead and pause the video right here and do it all by yourself, feel free to do so. That's fine. Um, but I'm just going to go over it right now. So I'm looking at this first compound right here, which happens to be one I really like, water. Okay. Oxygen has a 3.5 electronegativity. Hydrogen has a 2.1. What's the difference? 1.4, right? So what are you going to call that? You're going to call hydrogen a polar covalent molecule. And I'll show you that in a demonstration. That's actually pretty interesting. 
right? What about NaCl? Well, without even looking at the chart, we've got a metal, non-metal, ionic, right? Chromium iodide, ooh, chromium, 1.6, iodide. Now, let's not worry about this part right here, okay? We're just kind of making this simple for ourselves. Uh, iodide is 2.5. What's the difference? 0 0.9, all right? Now, 0 0.9 means it's a polar covalent molecule. However, it's a metal and a nonmetal. So that's one of the problems with this little model we have. But we're just going to, for our purposes, we'll go ahead and say, oh, that's a polar covalent. All right? Calcium and selenium. Calcium is 1.0. Selenium is 2.4. There we go. That's going to be polar covalent. Arsenic and phosphorus. Let's see, arsenic is 2.0, phosphorus is 2.1, okay? I'm going to call this nonpolar covalent. All right, for zinc sulfide, let's see. Zinc, 1.6, sulfur, 2.5, difference, 0 0.9, uh, polar covalent. So you can see the, see the idea. I don't want to work on the rest of those, but... That's the idea, all right? Now, I didn't, I didn't show you a picture. I wanted to show you this one picture of kind of the way polar molecules line up, okay? So let's say the water. Remember I, I said that, uh, you know, the oxygen would be a more negative and the hydrogen side would be more positive. You can see how they kind of line up. And, and as I mentioned, this is one of the things that gets uh, – uh, gives them their properties. There's a reason that water takes a fairly high temperature to boil, and that's because of this attractive force. Right? Okay, so now that we've looked at electronegativity and we understand the difference between a covalent molecule, a polar covalent molecule, ionic uh, molecule, let's look at this diagram right down here, and you can see there's a couple water molecules, and so we want to go over exactly what is polar and basically what it means is that because of the electronegativity on this page before like for example look at oxygen right here it's at a value of 3.5 over here hydrogen's at a value of 2.1 so oxygen is a little more electronegative um, and so if we look at our diagram here on the oxygen side you can see it's negative there and on the hydrogen side it's a little more positive and so it's kind of like if you think of uh, a magnet we've got poles we've got a positive pole and uh, a south pole well positive pole and a negative pole um, if you look if you ever see in a book you might see this sign it's a lowercase delta sign it looks it looks like this just like a half eight so that's a positive and then it would be negative so you'll you'll see that uh, representing polarity but uh, this polarity has a lot to do with the properties of elements and, and compounds, and we'll get into that quite a bit later. Um, but as far as electronegativity difference, if we look at those values given on this chart right here, um, those with the bigger difference, uh, and that means they're more polar, they end up having the strongest bonds and the largest bond energy. And... Uh, bond energy is something that we're going to deal with a little bit later when we figure out how much energy it takes to break a bond and make a bond. Now there's one last little bit of bonding I want to talk about, and it has to do with metals. 
right? Because maybe you've never really thought about this, but remember, things are sticking together because, as far as we know, they have opposite charges, right? Okay, or they're sharing electrons. Okay, but what about if you've got a piece of metal? Like, let's say I have a big chunk of gold, right? Which I'd like to have since it's about $1,800 an ounce right now. Let's say I have a big chunk of gold. How in the world are those atoms sticking together? They're definitely not oppositely charged because if, it, if we were talking about an ion of, of uh, gold, it would be positively charged. And they're definitely not sharing their electrons in the way that uh, molecules do to make a uh, covalent bond. So we have this new kind. A, well, I shouldn't say new. We have a different way of that, that our model is for metallic bonds. And that is the valence electrons move from one atom to another. And they're kind of sharing all their valence electrons. Right? So again, there's these attractive forces and uh, repulsive forces enough to keep the metals together, but they kind of share their electrons. Now, they're good conductors because of this, because let's imagine I attached a wire here, and I attached it to a battery, six-volt battery, okay? and I had a circuit, and let's say I have a little light bulb, right? Okay. Well, electrons will flow. And as they hit the metal, of course they're traveling in this metal, they're just bumping electrons over, bumping electrons over, bumping electrons over. So that makes this electron go this way. And then they'll flow and flow and so on. Right? And so metals are really good conductors of electricity. It also has to do with why they're good conductors of heat. They're, uh, this sea of electrons, this uh, metallic bonding, uh, really makes them... Uh, melt at a, at a high temperature, mostly because uh, the way that uh, bonding occurs. All right. And then last but not least, I've got one more little thing about, you know, ionic bonds, just because this whole, this whole podcast is kind of review. But this is stuff we know. Don't need to write this down unless you don't remember. Ionic bonds are strong, hard to break, and we know that their melting points are very high, right? It's hard to break apart two oppositely charged things. Things that are sharing electrons, like molecules, they're easy to uh, break apart. All right, so there's our podcast on bonding. Uh, again, like always, if you have any questions about this covalent bond stuff, let me know, and we'll discuss it in class. See you next time.